Hello, and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan, the end is nigh, Van Shank, and here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy, wishes he was a hobbit swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you Wishes He Was a Hobbit Swingle? Yeah, well, I've been rereading Lord of the Rings recently. It's my second time through, and uh, I'm following along with the guys over at the Babylon Bee podcast, which is excellent, by the way. If, if anyone is listening, you haven't read Lord of the Rings or you, you have before and you're a fan, I, their podcasts have been excellent. Uh, and I just wish I was a hobbit. That's I, I guess that's all there is to it. Um, yeah, like the... <laughs> What's what's so great about being a hobbit that uh, is attractive over against being of the the races of men? Well, I think something that Tolkien was huge on, um, and and which they've been bringing out a lot on the podcast, and I've been noticing as I'm reading, is is just like he wanted to portray these these people who are simple in a good way, right? These people who just enjoy the the fine things in life. They enjoy friendship and family and good drink and a party. Right. And, and they just are good, good, loving people who keep to themselves and don't feel like they need to save the world. But when it becomes incumbent on them to save the world, a few of them step up to do it, you know. And um, and I think that's a really powerful like start for a story, you know, that Frodo and Sam and Mary and Pippin are just these these dudes who, you know, enjoy partying <laughs> um, and, and, and they're they're good people. It's not like they enjoy partying in like a dissipation sense, like where they're just uh i don't know like drunkenness or whatever you know it's they're not it's not that kind of thing they're like good-hearted people who love their community and uh and then are sent on this epic quest and that's just such a good starting point for a book but but also it's a great place i think for us in the the absolute insanity of our present era um in the last year or so (laughs) (laughs) you know just like everybody wanting to like fix problems on a global scale and trying to seize national power and uh, and thinking that that's the way that, that like we win. Um, but no, like in Christianity, and I think in, in Tolkien's understanding of Christianity, we win by uh, partying and enjoying one another. Like, you know. <laughs> and, of, and of course, like that's a little bit of a simple party way our it, way but... to victory. <laughs> yeah, just like, yeah, whatever. Life's going crazy out, out there. And, you know, in D.C., there's troops everywhere. OK, whatever, you know just go to church and love my family and you know <laughs> like that's that's exactly what i think tolkien wants us to get out of out of the hobbits there we go maybe we should have called you jeremy loves to party but not in a debauchery kind of way swingle <laughs> <laughs> there we go yeah <laughs> well how about you john why do they call you the end is nigh van Chank? well uh, um, they call me the end is nigh Van Shank because I finally, after years and years of being in graduate school, have a date set for my defense where I will I will stand before my committee and talk about what I've been doing for the last five years. And then in in, uh, uh, you know, great Caesarian fashion, they will either give me the thumbs up or thumbs down to determine <laughs> whether or not I should have a Ph.D., or or not, which you know. Now that I I think about it that way, it's actually way more terrifying. But <laughs> did you ever imagine your entire self worth would be wrapped up in the direction of a thumb? 
<laughs> it does. There is a little piece of that. I mean, you know, on the other hand, they, my committee has a very strong, like they, they have a vested interest in uh, uh, passing me uh, <laughs> uh, because it, you know, it looks really good for the department if they grant degrees. And so they're like, they, they really do want to pass me, but they're not just going to pass me. You know, it's, it's <laughs> actually, that's kind of the way that all graduate school classes are like no graduate school, like no grad class professor is sitting there like ah ha, ha, how can i fail these students you know like uh, unlike uh uh you know maybe some like lower division like undergraduate classes where they're trying to like weed people out of the program by the time you get into grad school like nobody wants to weed you out of grad school uh, <laughs> they've like put a bunch of time into you and they really want you to produce research so they're just like come on just like do the work you know just like you know turn things in and you'll get at least a B and it'll be fine. And then go back and do more research and publish more papers so that we can look good. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, that's how it ought to be. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. But yeah, so March 16th, March 16th at 10 a.m., I'll be defending my thesis and then I will be done and I'll just have a regular job and <laughs> life can maybe go back to some semblance of normal again. And if I'm not mistaken, John, we're planning on, on doing a, a bit of a hiatus on this podcast until past March 16th. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. So this will be the last podcast that we put out for uh, about a month and a half here. And then uh, uh, after I'm done with my thesis, I will have free time again to <laughs> be able to uh, write and record these podcast episodes. So it'll be it'll be something to look for to everybody that uh um as as me and jeremy enter the 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 second year of fatherhood we will come back uh in in full force to give you more exegesis of scripture amen to that well speaking of which let's uh dig into our non-exegesis of scripture today cut the chit chat let's crack open the word perhaps i should explain that <laughs> because we're not really gonna exegete the text today um at least not that much uh, instead, we're at the last part of our Romans road. And uh, the thing is that these verses, we've sort of already <laughs> explained kind of, we I don't know, we've touched on the topics in these verses. And we've also looked at the context of them in, in one case already. So <laughs> instead of uh, doing our normal strategy of looking at the context and exegeting, since I think the, the meaning of these passages is clear, we'd like to take our last episode of The Roman's Road and use it to kind of critique, uh, give a positive and negative assessment of The Roman's Road as a whole, as an evangelistic tool, and uh, kind of come up with our suggestions for improvement and uh, what we really like about it and, and all that stuff. So... A little bit less uh, hardcore exegesis this time, maybe more like theological riffing um, from the book of Romans. Uh, so it'll be a little different, but should be a lot of fun. With that being said, uh, let's recap the Romans road, John. Right. So we have been running through the Romans road, which, as you will all remember from the last four episodes of this podcast, is a series of verses that um, uh, from the book of Romans that people tend to use in an evangelistic context. And we spent a long time talking about them. So I'll just give you a quick summary of the, the four points that we have made it through. Uh, uh, and get us primed here for uh, our stop number five on the Romans Road. So stop number one on the Romans Road, we talked about these, this observation that everybody 
is sinful. Um, and, and in the case of, of the way that Paul is using that in Romans, he's saying that like both Jews and Gentiles or Jews and Greeks, kind of in his sense, all kinds of categories of people stand equally condemned before God for having sinned. That they, you know, they not only are sinful, but are condemned for that sin, which, you know, it's kind of some bummer news that we're, we're like in this place of being condemned by God. And that's kind of like default for uh, all, all people. Uh, then we moved on to step number two, and, and that is some more bad news, and that is because we have sinned and we stand condemned before God, we are deserving of death. That basically the sentence for our crime is that of death, that there's kind of, you know, there's no chance of parole or like, hey, maybe we'll just sort of let you off with a slap on the wrist this time. But sin is a big deal to God. And uh, uh, so we are all kind of in a bad place and the the outlook does not look good for us if we uh, remain in this state of being condemned before God. But then we get to point number three, and this is where the good news starts to kick in, and that is that Christ died for us, that Jesus, coming as the incarnate Son of God, came to earth uh, in part to pay for our sins in his death on the cross. And, uh, you know, by doing that, he has then uh, uh, paid the debt of our sins so that now, instead of us having to uh, uh, bear that sentence of death, Jesus is the one who bore that sentence of death for us. And so then in point number four, we get to, well, it's great that now we've seen that God has done all of these things, but what is there for us to do in response to that? So Jesus has died for us, but then, you know, like, what do we need to do? So we get to point number four. Uh, it is that there are, are, are two things that you're called to do uh, uh, as part of this kind of Romans Road evangelistic tool. The first is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And, and we talked about before that that's more than just saying that like, oh, hey, you know, Jesus, he's, you know, a cool guy, but like specifically that he's Lord, that he is king over all things. And that in that confession, you are actually putting yourself under Christ's lordship and putting yourself under his rulership, that he is now king of not just your life, but you are acknowledging him as king of the entire universe. That's that's kind of the piece with confessing that Jesus is Lord. And then the other half is to believe, uh, to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And so you are then putting your faith in Christ uh, and in the work that he has done. And, and th that's kind of the response that is required from you. Uh, and then that's sort of your, your, your side of things in this, in this relationship that God is setting up with people. And so that kind of takes us through the first four points. And now we get to the fifth point in the Romans road, which Jeremy, what, what are, what are the verses that we're dealing with today for point number five? You'll see different verses used for this step in the Romans road, and sometimes both of them together. We're looking at Romans 8 and Romans 5, the first verse of both of those chapters. So 8.1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, that's a pretty dope verse. What about 5.1? <laughs> uh, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So these are sort of two different sides of, of the same coin. Um, there's no wrath. Instead, there's peace. That's the idea. I think the reason why I'm not that interested in talking about the context of these verses is that really the only context there is to talk about, since these verses introduce new sections of the of the letter of Romans, um, is to talk about the word therefore. And 
the the problem with these words therefore <laughs> is that they pretty much refer to the entirety of the letter up until this point <laughs> so so the context for Romans 5:1 is Romans 1 through 4 <laughs> and the context for Romans 8:1 is Romans 1 through 7 <laughs> and we've like we've already sort of looked at a lot of the context surrounding it you know so i i don't know that's that's my argument for why i did, i did not read commentaries for an hour or more for this episode <laughs> um certainly and and i mean we already kind of talked about most of the the pieces of of each of these uh points anyway this idea of like there's no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus well i mean that's basically the the exact opposite of you know points number one and two of the romans road that you know if you're not in christ jesus there is condemnation for you and so uh, we kind of already covered most of the most of the content here in, in talking about what this all means uh, you know, and additionally with Romans 5.1, with this, you know, being justified by faith, we we spent uh, like two and a half episodes basically talking about justification by faith uh, and kind of what that means. And and so then kind of really the only pieces that these that these verses introduces is, is maybe kind of the idea of like being in Christ Jesus or like having peace with God. And, and we, I guess we haven't really talked about those topics all that much, but hopefully that's going to be a, a little bit of, of what we talk about today and, and kind of some of the other pieces of like, you know, now that we like, now that you are in Christ Jesus, like what is like, like what is life with God? Like it's time for the meat. Well, hopefully having justified a little bit why we are are not going to be spending a lot of time digging into the context of these verses, uh, I, I think kind of what the what we are going to try to do with this episode instead is uh, uh, to look at the Romans road as a whole, mostly, and to, like, I guess, offer our summarized take on the Romans road. And we, we've sort of talked about this a little bit, but the, you know, you know, essentially our, our idea of like, like the Romans road, you know, is it good? Is it bad? You know, what, you know, hot take, what do we think of this thing? We're going to offer some additional verses from the book of Romans uh, that, that we think might uh, uh, bolster some of the potentially weak points in the Romans road. And so that's kind of really what we're going to spend the rest of the episode talking about here. Well, first, let's, uh, let's go over some positives, because I like the Romans road a lot. Um, I think first and most obviously, uh, the last few weeks have not been as adversarial, I think, on this podcast, because... The Romans Road doesn't really misinterpret any of its six verses. It's sort of a simplistic look at the six verses, but I mean, that's kind of what you would expect out of an evangelism presentation. So I think that's a, a, a huge positive. Yeah, certainly. If you only have like a few minutes that you're going to be using to share the gospel with somebody, you're, you're not going to get into like into the deep waters of theology you're certainly not going to spend upwards of six or seven hours chatting you know on a podcast <laughs> all of the nuances of of each of these verses so i like like you say jeremy i think it's okay that these that the the romans road uses these verses in a little bit of a simplistic in a little bit of a simplistic fashion i think that's kind of by design sure yeah you can't yeah you can't get into the entire context with an evangelism presentation nor would you want to and there are plenty of people who just like wouldn't really track with a discussion of the context of Romans. It's a very complex book. Um, and and so, you know, if you want to reach as wide a group of people as possible, you got to keep it, keep it simple. Um, something else I really like about the Romans road is that it has a coherent order. I like, I like the order of the steps. It establishes our need for salvation before how God provided salvation for us. And I like that order. I, I sometimes hear people preach the gospel in 
uh, I want to say kind of like wacky ways where it's like they didn't think about, I don't know, the audience's response. Uh, I've heard some very bizarre preaching. Um, (laughs) uh, I I don't want to offend anybody, but like kind of fundamentalist (laughs) preaching, Um, like where they just like start saying, and Jesus died for your sins, you know, and all this stuff. And it's like, uh, you didn't say what sin was. <laughs> so I, I don't know. There's occasionally it, uh, I've seen some gospel presentations that, that seem like they haven't thought about their audience, which is to me not good because the Bible doesn't just say preach the gospel. It gives us examples of the apostles preaching the gospel in different contexts and the way they preach it looks different. Um, in those different contexts, because they're talking to different people. This should be obvious, but um, but I think some people don't think about that. The Romans Road does, though. I like the order. For sure. And, and I think one of the things that I really appreciate about the Romans Road is the kind of the uh, like approach of what it, the Romans Road is trying to accomplish, not just in the the hearer of the, the, the person who's like hearing this gospel presentation, but also in the person who is presenting the gospel. You know, it, kind of like what you said a little bit, Jeremy, there of it, it sort of offers this coherent, clear, step by step process that you can go through for presenting the gospel. And so I think in that sense, it encourages people to have a clear sense of what is the theology that they're trying to present to people. And so the, the Romans Road offers this like, here is kind of a like a clear presentation of what the gospel is. And so I, I think that's really helpful to the believer who is utilizing this tool. And so I really want to give, you know, Mr. Road uh, like a pat on the back for for coming up with this uh, <laughs> really great tool here. Um, and, and and the other thing that I think that the the Romans Road does, which is is good, is that it encourages people to memorize scripture. That kind of what the Romans Road says is, hey, memorize these five verses. You can use them as a tool in in evangelism. And and while you know I may have some misgivings about memorizing verses out of context i think it's better to like memorize verses than like not memorize verses and uh and you know i can almost see the romans road as uh, the, the 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 gateway into more biblical memorization and so again i think the more scripture that we can get into people's heads into believers heads the better and so like i i think it's great that the romans road offers this maybe like low barrier to entry of like, hey, it's it's just five verses. You can memorize five verses. And then, you know, hopefully the follow-up after that will be like, hey, and you can memorize more than five verses too. Yeah. And I think that's also part of the advantage of this as like an evangelistic tool is um, I've never done like street preaching before. Um, I've heard it's brutally difficult. I've seen it done poorly. I've heard that it's often done well, but I haven't necessarily seen it done well. <laughs> um, but I've heard that it's very difficult to do well. And one of the things that you need to do if you're going to be involved in that, in that frankly brutal ministry, um, is memorize verses. And you're going to need to be able to explain the gospel from scripture. And, um, I think this would be a very useful place to start. Like, Hey, these are some verses that, that pertain to, uh, the most important facts of the gospel. And that's great. So, yeah, I mean, we're going to dunk on the Romans Road a little bit, and we're going to try to replace it with the Romans Audubon, I think, <laughs> <laughs> going, going forward here. Um, but to be honest, I, I dig the Romans Road. This is, uh, this is a, a critique of love, you know, as we pave over the, <laughs> the remnants of the old Romans Road. <laughs> 
we 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 are like the 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 good friend of the Romans Road, who's like it's it's awesome Romans Road that that you've you know started down this path of of wanting to become a track star and you know to to be this like great runner, uh, and and it's awesome that you started jogging every day, and 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 we we want you to keep doing that and and move on to you know state finals and you know eventually to the Olympics and and take down Usain Bolt in that you know hundred meter dash and and it's great that you're doing like community track and field right now but we believe in you romans road that you could be so much more than this yeah so so romans road is is rocky and we are mickey is that is that over <laughs> yes 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 that is exactly right all right so romans road you better you better uh drink your eggs there and uh <laughs> yeah drink your eggs start punching uh uh like giant hunks of meat hanging in a freezer have we gone long enough with this metaphor yet? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Let's. So, okay. So we, we, we spent a while talking about what we like about the Romans road and then that hopefully this is going to be a, like a kind, encouraging correction that we're offering here. Not like a, you know, we hate the Romans road, but so let's just rip the bandaid off. What is it really about the Romans road that we want to enhance into this new Romans Autobahn here? I think a good place to start would be to look at the way that the apostles themselves preach the gospel. And I think, I think in general, this is where we want to start for an understanding of how to evangelize. And where do we find that but in the book of Acts? Now, certainly we can learn things from the Old Testament prophets, plenty of things, and from the ministry of Jesus. Well, obviously, <laughs> but I think the most direct application to our present day has got to be the apostles preaching the gospel after Jesus was raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost. Like, you know, we're, we literally live in the same age of, you know, God's working on the earth as the apostles. So I think we got to look at the book of Acts. So one word in Greek that is very important to uh, talking about the book of Acts, and, and I'm, we're going to use it, I think, throughout here, because it's a great word to know, is this word kerygma. Um, and it means proclamation, preaching, uh, something along those lines. Basically, you know, when we talk about the apostles' kerygma, what we're talking about is the content of their message. What did they say when they were preaching about the gospel? What did they say when they were trying to convert people to Christ? That is the kerygma. And one thing I noticed about the Romans Road is that it's missing some of this kerygma. Uh, that that the apostles considered important when preaching um, to the Jews, and then in a little bit we'll talk about how the apostles preached to the the Greek world, which is a little different. But first, like what's happening in Acts when they when they preach this kerygma to the Jews? Um, the first what I would notice is uh, at the end of the sermon that Peter gives after Pentecost. So right, the Holy Spirit comes down, they begin speaking in tongues, and um, and they're speaking to all the Jews who had gathered in Jerusalem, uh, and they're from all these different nations, but they're hearing the apostles speak in their own native tongues. Um, and so that's what happens at Pentecost. Peter gives this rousing sermon, um, and I find these comments at the end of it to be very interesting. So this is Acts chapter 2, verses 33, 38, and 40. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, that's talking about Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That would be the, the tongues from the Spirit. 
And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So there's a few things here that Peter found important to preach right off the bat when preaching Christ that are missing in the Romans road. Yeah, it's fascinating that Peter in his in his first take here of of getting to preach to this this Jewish audience, um you know, now being filled with the Holy Spirit and and kind of seeing the the consummation of the promise that 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 Jesus had given to his his disciples that they would receive the Holy Spirit and be able to preach with power. And so now like it's happened and so Peter is, you know, coming to preach and like what are the things that he's emphasizing to his Jewish audience here? One of the first that sticks out to me is he emphasizes Jesus's ascension and exaltation. We see that in verse uh, uh, 33 of, you know, therefore being exalted at the right hand of God, that, you know, Jesus being exalted and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, and so it's this idea of like Christ being like brought back up to heaven and then being exalted and seated at God's right hand. You know, the context here is that being at someone's right hand is like this privileged position of like, you know, we have it in English of like being somebody's right hand man. It's that like Jesus, he's being made God's right hand man. And he's, you know, brought up to this very exalted position. And that that's like one of the first points that Peter is hitting in like his kind of sealing the deal at the end of the sermon of like, you know, you, you uh, like, this is one of the points, the take home messages that I really want you to know as I am preaching, you know, this message to you as Christ has been exalted. And that's like central to what Peter is, is talking about here. I agree. It is, it is central and, um, and often, often left out of our preaching. Um, this was this was something that the apostles clearly thought was crucial, and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why it's important that Christ didn't just rise from the dead, but also ascended into heaven. Um, you know, for example, Jesus intercedes for us continually. That's you know a, a message that gets teased out a lot in the book of Hebrews, not necessarily in the book of Acts as much. Um, but uh, but yeah, but Jesus is is at the right hand of the Father and pouring out the Spirit on us now, and Jesus's presence at the right hand of the Father indicates, you know, the, I guess the acceptability of his sacrifice, um, to the Father, right? That Jesus Christ didn't just die and was raised, but he's been exalted to the highest position possible at the right hand of his Father. He conquered the grave. He conquered sin, he conquered death, and now he stands in heaven to make intercession for us, right? Um, plus, this it's also just an important like end to the story, right? Like what happened after Jesus rose from the dead? Is he did he die again? Did he is he still walking around on earth? Is he a ghost, right? Um, so <laughs> it'd be kind of like like we didn't say at the end of Star Wars episode six, like what actually happened to, you know, the Emperor and Darth Vader. <laughs> you know? It's like, oh well, Darth Vader turned back and he became good again. Um, did he die? What happened? What? <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, so cool. <laughs> but, but we got to finish the story. And this is just a basic, like, you know, finishing up of the story, I think, in our preaching. Like, okay, Jesus is here and he's always going to be there. Right. <laughs> and he's making intercession for us. Right. And and you do maybe get a little bit of this in stop number four on the Romans road of, you know, Romans ten nine of like, you know, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And I, I guess kind of buried in that that proclamation of Jesus being Lord is this idea of Jesus being king, you know, of the whole universe. And like 
that sort of requires this being seated at the right hand of God the Father, that, you know, Christ has been exalted in in heaven and now kind of like sits in rulership over the whole world. And and so that's kind of buried down in there. But I mean, like this this proclamation of Christ's ascension is front and center in how the apostles preach the gospel. And so, you know, we think it's really important that we should be like the apostles in putting Christ's ascension front and center in our proclamation as well. Well, how about this other thing that... Uh that Peter sees necessary to mention. And of course, this is the the events of Pentecost. So Peter had a, a motivation to talk about it, but, um, but the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? He's talking about how Jesus has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he's poured out as an evidence of that, uh, of that Holy Spirit, you know, th- this gift of tongues. Um, and so the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us when we believe in Christ. Now, this is huge. The Romans Road doesn't even talk about this. And that's kind of funny because Romans 8 is almost exclusively devoted to the topic of the, of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. It's a huge theme in probably the most well-loved chapter of the Bible. <laughs> uh, Romans 8, definitely up there. Um, one of my favorite chapters. So it's, this is a very interesting omission, I think, from the Romans Road. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting that the Romans Road is very, like, Jesus-centric. And, um, you know, not to say that being Jesus centric is bad, <laughs> you know, and it's sort of a thing of like, oh, like we have like a Christ centered, you know, gospel proclamation. It's like, well, yes, because Jesus is central to the whole to the whole affair. Um, but at the same time, if you look at what Jesus preaches and what, what Jesus tells his disciples is, hey, like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking here particularly of, of John chapters like 13 through 17, kind of Jesus's whole thing is that like, hey, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send the spirit to you to be this this counselor, this encourager to convict and to lead and to teach. And, and, and so that the spirit is now the thing that we have dwelling in us that like Christ is not like physically with us, but the spirit does live in our hearts as believers. And like, this is like you're saying, Jeremy, central to the life of the believer, like post-conversion is this indwelling of the Holy Spirit to teach and to guide and to instruct and to convict. And like, like all of these things that the spirit does in, in our hearts is central to what our experience of the Christian faith is. Certainly. And it's kind of like, we don't even, if, if we're being technical, we don't even need to know that there is a Holy Spirit to be quote unquote saved. Like, that's not part of justification to, to understand, I don't know, uh, you know. Now, of course, we if we wouldn't deny that the Holy Spirit exists, if we were true believers, because that would be heresy. Um, but maybe we just haven't heard of it. That does happen in the book of Acts. I think it's chapter 19. There's some Christians who, who haven't heard of the Holy Spirit. And like, Paul's like, dude, what the heck? You haven't heard about the Holy Spirit? Um, <laughs> and it, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, your friend who tells you about LaCroix for the first time, you know. Uh, <laughs> life changing, life changing thing here, guys. You got to hear about the Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, you've been drinking canned beverages for this long, and you don't know about Lacroix. <laughs> Have you heard about our Lord and Savior, Lacroix? <laughs> well, anyways, sorry, um, <laughs> sorry for derailing it, but uh, but. Um, but no, I think you don't even technically need to have heard of the Holy Spirit to be saved, but you'd be pretty lost <laughs> in the Christian life without it. It's kind of the very first thing you would want to know about living as a Christian is that, well, okay, the Father and the Son are up in heaven. What the heck's going on down here? What? Is this just like some deism where like God, you know, did all his work and then he just left us alone? It's like, no, Christ mediates his presence 
to us through the Holy Spirit. He was very clear about this. Again, like you said, John, there's multiple chapters in the Gospel of John devoted to this. Um, entire chapters in many of Paul's letters devoted to this. Um, you know, key passages like the fruit of the Spirit passage in Galatians 5. Just so much of, of the Christian life revolves around understanding the Spirit's presence in us. Um, and so, you know, I think this is a crucial element to any to any basic gospel presentation, in my opinion. Um, you would have to say something along the lines of, you know, and if you accept Christ, like, you know, the Holy Spirit dwells within you and helps you fight sin and empowers you to live a Christian life and please God. And like, that's got to be a part of it. Yeah. Well, speaking of things that you would want to know immediately upon conversion, like about the indwelling of the Spirit, uh, there's there's another thing in this proclamation that, that Peter gives in the beginning of the book of Acts here, and that is the command to be baptized. Now, we, we didn't end up reading this this verse, but uh, immediately before when Peter, you know, he says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, is, you know, you get this, like, Peter's getting to the end of his sermon, and and I love this passage in Acts of, of like, all the people there, it says, you know, they were cut to the heart and said, you know, like, what must we do? And and so it's this, like, Peter is answering the question of the crowd of, like, they have heard this this proclamation of like who Christ is and what he has done. And, and now they're responding and saying like, what do we have to do? And so like, this is, this is perfect. This is the, you know, in, in the Romans road, you get this, you know, what should we do in point four? But now we also have Peter who, you know, as the inspired, as an inspired apostle is telling these people like, this is what you should do. And the two things that he says is repent and be baptized. And so like, in Peter's head, the idea of like being baptized as a Christian is absolutely central to it. Like this is this is the thing that you do. You repent and you are baptized. And and so I think it's just kind of conspicuous that in the Romans Road there's no mention of baptism, like even a little bit. Like even even in the response part in point four, the like the the idea that you get from the Romans Road is, oh, the two things that I do is confess and believe. And and certainly as believers we need to confess and believe, but like there's no mention of baptism in the Romans road. And this is like the one of the two things that Peter emphasizes to the crowds when they ask what their response to the message should be. Yeah, I do love how that's Peter's immediate, like repent and be baptized. Those are the two things you do. <laughs> like there's not three things. You do these two things and you're good, right? <laughs> repent and be baptized. That's the that's the response to the gospel intended. Um, and I think it's also interesting here that he says, repent and be baptized. Um, so this is not necessarily something that the Romans road is missing, but it depends on how it's preached. Because uh, the Romans road could be preached in such a way as to miss the necessity of repentance. It depends on how pre how we present Romans 10, 9, right? That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Uh, kind of like we were talking about when we tackled that verse. If we preach the Lordship of Jesus, um, when we preach that verse, then we are sort of including the necessity of repentance as a part of that, right? Because you're, you know, that, that means that you need to actually obey Jesus <laughs> and turn from sin. Yeah, yeah, you need to, you need to turn away from autonomy, from self-rule, and turn toward theonomy of God's rule. Amen. That's a good way of putting it, dude. That should be on like a bumper sticker. Um, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> Thank like, you. I can't take full credit from that. I don't remember where I heard that phrase from, but I... I that's not a Jonathan original, but... <laughs> but yeah, so it depends on how that verse is preached, because I've definitely heard that pre verse preached and, and the lordship of Christ just kind of 
glossed over. Um, so yeah, that may be missing from the Romans road. Uh, and, and this is obviously a central part of the Kerygma. Um, you know, like, Peter's literally like, you guys are guilty for killing Jesus. <laughs> you need to repent. You know, um, yes, this Jesus who you crucified. <laughs> yeah, like y'all need to repent. Um, and of course, like in the Gospels, we see Jesus and John the Baptist. Their message is repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Um, so repentance is, is a crucial element of this all. Uh, and, uh, I think we've, we've talked plenty about that in other episodes that, um, the, the Bible is not what we would call antinomian, which is kind of a big word for like, um, believing that obedience to God's law is irrelevant, um, for, for, you know, salvation. Yeah. Yeah. To, to parse that, that phrase for our audience a little bit, like nomian or, 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 like that n-o-m root is uh, uh like a greek root which refers to law and so the phrase antinomian is you're like against the law so in this context it'd be like against god's law which actually also explains the the phrase that i said earlier of like autonomy so like autonomy is you know like self auto and then nomi law so it's like it's your self law or your own rule as opposed to like theonomy, which like Theo is God. And so like Theonomy is God's law. So there's sort of kind of those three things floating around of like antinomianism of being like against law. Autonomy or like autonomy, if I can mispronounce it there, is like self-law. And then theonomy is God's law. Right. Yep. Yeah. We've covered that a lot. Like when we talked about James and stuff, that repentance is an, is an essential element of the gospel. And, um, you know, I think this is more well understood these days. Uh, but there was an era in American, like popular religion, and it was recent enough that there's still plenty of people alive today who lived through this era, uh, where I think it was common for the necessity of repentance to just be completely glossed over in churches and, and in evangelistic presentations entirely, um, just say like, believe in Jesus, you know, come forward and say the sinner's prayer and, you know, you will be saved. Uh, nope. That's not how the apostles preached. They said, repent. Um, and any, <laughs> that's not how Jesus preached. That's not how the prophets preached. Certainly John the Baptist and all the ones before him, uh, their message is repent. Uh, you, you don't just get to say a sinner's prayer. Like that's not, that's not how it goes. You, you need to actually desire to obey Jesus. Um, and you know, and God gives us that desire. It's not our works, uh, that save us, but, but the, you know, but, but we're not, again, we're not saved uh, by a faith that doesn't work, to harken back to our James episode. Well, uh, all that said, uh, we've sort of been talking about this, this. We've given this first example of the apostles' teaching. And, and in this context, it's important that Peter is preaching to a group of Jews. Now, if you remember from our discussion of the first part of Romans, that Paul kind of goes to these great lengths of saying, like, both Jews and Gentiles are, are sinful. And, and he kind of treats them as separate categories. And so in this, you know... We, we should be important to emphasize that there is one category of person that is being addressed in this first speech that Peter is giving in the book of Acts. That's it's a group of Jews. So so then the, the immediate question might be, well, then, you know, how do we address the other group of people, the, the non-Jews, the, the Greeks, the Gentiles? And in fact, we actually have another example of the apostles preaching. In this case, it's Paul teaching to a group of Gentiles. 
kind of some of the context here is in the book of Acts, uh, Paul has come to the city of Athens, and he has come up to this this place in the city of Athens where a bunch of Greek philosophers would like come together and and talk and debate. And, you know, I think the phrase in the book of Acts is to like, you know, hear what, you know, somebody new is is uh, like having to say. So this is sort of like where you would go to kind of have some kind of, I mean, I would probably put it in terms of uh, like idle intellectual stimulation that you just go to this place and have a discussion with somebody who, you know, thinks some, you know, new idea or something like that. Do you, would, was that a fair characterization? Well, actually, it literally says that in the text. It says um, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. <laughs> that that was that's Luke's characterization of of the intellectual climate of Athens. Savage. So so Paul is kind of coming into this environment of people wanting to hear a new thought, and then he gives this like very stirring presentation of what the message of Jesus is to these people. And and again. The important feature here is that the audience is Gentiles, not Jews. So these are a group of people who don't have a context for the Jewish faith or like why it would be important for there to be this Jewish Messiah who would come or, you know, necessarily understanding the promises of God to the people of Israel. And, and so that they, they don't have a context for any of those ideas. And so how is it that the apostle preaches to them? And, you know, interestingly, we in the present day are in a similar kind of position to these sort of hearers where most of us don't really, you know, have a context for why the Jewish Messiah is really that big of a deal or like, you know, who really cares about what some God may have promised to, you know, a bunch of Israelites living thousands of years ago? Like, like, what does that have to do with us? You know, it, it is sort of the the mindset that that you know, just kind of your average American might have. And so this actually then, this presentation of the gospel is particularly relevant of like, what are all of the other pieces that you need to, in, uh, that are important to the message of Jesus, if you don't already have this massive, like background knowledge of God's faithfulness, like covenant faithfulness to Israel, that's in the back of everybody's mind, which is, you know, it, like exactly how Jews would be thinking. But if you don't have all of that, what does the proclamation of the gospel look like? Well, yeah, it definitely looks different. <laughs> um, so let's jump in, I guess, right here in Acts 17. Um, and I'm going to read verses 24 through 29. It's not the entire sermon, but it'll it'll suffice to show uh, kind of the, the difference in strategy here. Um, so pay attention. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And then Paul will go on from here to, to talk about the, the need for repentance as a response to this and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it's at the resurrection of the dead that his listeners dismiss him because this was a controversial idea 
to the Greeks. They were dualists. They thought the body was evil and the soul was good. So why in the world would God want to raise a body from the dead? That would be opposed to their own understanding of, of you know, the body not necessarily being all that it's cracked up to be. <laughs> so so it's interesting that, that Paul waits until the very end of the sermon to mention the resurrection of the dead. Because he would have known that his, his, his audience would have balked at resurrection. Yeah, so he waits until they've given him a bit of an ear before he says the thing that he knows will turn most of them away. Um, and, but it's interesting that leading up to, to this, he doesn't, he doesn't go into all of this stuff they don't understand. He hits them right where they already think. He, he tells them, hey, even your own poets have said things along these lines, right? Uh, he quotes, uh, I forget who he's quoting. He's, he's quoting an actual Greek poet. Like we have the, we still have the, the original source that he's quoting from uh, somewhere in our ancient, I don't know, collection of manuscripts. Um, so we know what Paul is referencing here. And um, he's, he's talking to them on their own terms. And it's interesting that he doesn't go right for this like whole discussion of like, Jesus died for your sins, right? It's a very different preaching than we tend to do. Uh, instead, he talks about God. He talks about God being the one who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth. He talks about God being transcendent. Uh, he talks about God being providential, right? He says, he himself gives to all mankind everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind, and he determined the boundaries of their dwelling place, right? Like So Paul is talking about what we would call theology proper, <laughs> meaning theology that isn't like specifically about Christ or the Holy Spirit or the end times or salvation. It's just about the character of God, his attributes, and who he is in his uh, eternality. So Paul is talking about theology proper. And I think part of that is because he's not talking to Jews. Um, so he needs to, you know, describe who the God of Israel is. But I think the other part of this is just that he's talking to intellectuals. <laughs> and I think that does make a difference uh, in the presentation of the gospel. Um you know, if you're talking to somebody who's a total philosophy nerd, that's just going to look different than you're, if you're talking to, say, like somebody who's a drug addict and failed high school. Like, you know, both people need the gospel, but our strategy is probably going to look different. Yeah, certainly. And so Paul is is definitely laying the groundwork here in this first part of the sermon for the character and nature of God, which, uh, again, like we're saying, the, you know, the Gentiles wouldn't necessarily have the same kind of context for this that a Jewish audience would. And, and, and you're bringing up a great point, uh, Jeremy, that as intellectuals, Paul can kind of hit this theology hard, which is, is actually very advantageous for us in the modern day of like, if you want to know the the theology that that Paul would communicate, well, it's it's right here because he's hitting them like straight up with with uh, this kind of hardcore theology. So, like, what are some of the other like attributes and qualities of God and God's nature that Paul is emphasizing here? We already have God is transcendent, and then we have secondly that God, uh, uh, you know, exerts providence in the world that he you know sets up nations and peoples and you know. Uh, like does all that. But some of the other things is that God is a universal God. You know, we say here, uh, we see here that it's like, you know, it's God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by man. And so part of that's transcendence, but also a piece of that is that Paul is making the claim that God has this claim over the whole world. God is not just the God of the Jews that, you know, like is just localized as a like a tribal deity that would just hang out in Israel, but God, in fact, is God of the entire world. So Paul is actually like 
explicitly rejecting the pagan beliefs that many of the Gentiles would have of this idea that, you know, oh, there's this God of this place and there's this other God of this other place. And Paul's saying, no, it's not like that at all. God is the God of all the world. And how about this, uh, this like creation of man thing too? We are his offspring, right? Uh, this idea that, that we are made in his image. That's a really crucial, like, that's an absolutely essential part of understanding who we are in relation to god yeah it's like it's right there in genesis like (laughs) yeah (laughs) but like you know that's not a view that is shared by you know people of greece (laughs) people of rome no so paul definitely makes sure to hit that the creation of man in god's image yeah totally and and i mean there there is sort of an idea of people being like deity or close to deity in in the ancient world of, of particularly leaders that leaders are you know sort of seen as like the emissary of the gods or even descended from the gods uh but yeah no definitely this this jewish idea of every single human being being made in god's image is something that is it's important enough to the biblical authors that it gets slipped in right at the very beginning of the bible like jeremy said in you know in genesis and so paul is is making sure he hits that point in this sermon that he's delivering to these gentiles of you know it's it's very cool to see paul emphasizing you know the same kinds of important theological ideas that the rest of the old testament emphasizes as well and fascinatingly, he goes on from this point to teach them about proper worship of God, uh, because in verse 29, he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And I think kind of Paul's Paul's train of thought here is like, if if the idols that you guys are creating with your hands you know, those things are lesser than you because they're a product of you, right? So how could something that is, in in a metaphorical sense, your offspring somehow encapsulate the God of whom you are the offspring? Uh, but yeah, no, he's teaching them about proper worship. Like, you know, this is, you guys ought to have known better, is his point. Like, that's why, that's why he will now say you need to repent, right? That, that God commands everywhere, all people to repent. Because you should have known better. You should have known that if you were God's offspring, that that your offspring, the, the the things formed by your hands, cannot possibly define God, um, and so it's interesting that he he pivots to this idea of worship. Proper worship is even a part of this. Um, that's his accusation uh, of you know how they've sinned and why they need to repent um, is their false worship of God. Um, and of course, this is again just something that wouldn't have needed to be said to Jews. There were no groups of Jews in in the first century who were going around saying, actually, idolatry's fine. <laughs> you know? That just wasn't a debate that was being had. Even the Sadducees, with how you know loose they were in their interpretation of Torah, <laughs> were not like, yeah, cool, just make idols, you know? <laughs> um, so we see a very different presentation here. And I would propose, you, you kind of touched on this earlier, John, that the circumstances we are in today are far closer to the circumstances of Paul in Athens than the circumstances of Peter at the day of Pentecost. Um, you know, I, I don't know. What do you think about that? What are some some circumstances today where we might take a more uh, Petrine approach <laughs> um, as opposed to a Pauline approach? Because uh, I think in most circumstances, we're talking to people who don't even have a clue who God is. 
today. Yeah, well, I I think you kind of hit the 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 crux of the issue right there, and 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 we talked a little bit about this in our Romans ten nine um, uh, episode where we were saying like, well, you know, it's all well and good to tell people to you know confess and believe, but like confess what, believe in what, um, and this idea that you know in the modern day we're we're kind of post christian in our society that you know like you were saying in in the last episode jeremy that you know people may have familial connections with the church of like oh yeah like that's something that my grandma did or you know my parents are pretty religious or you know something but it like especially the kids in society today just have almost no understanding of christian truth and don't have that like uh, like knowledge background that would be required for them to even make sense of the kind of thing of believe in Jesus, like believe, like what, like what does that even mean? Um, and, and so in that sense, like the people today are in the position of the Athenians of not really having a context for the, you know, who the uh, uh, like Jewish Messiah is or why that's important. And yet, like you said, Jeremy, we tend to take much more of a Peter or a Petrine approach to preaching the gospel. We preach things like repent and be baptized. And but, you know, we, we don't give the background for like, you know, like repent. Why? Like, like, why do I need to repent? Like, what does repentance actually mean? Repent to whom? Yeah. Or even like if you say repent to God, it's like, I mean, our society has so many different contradictory notions of like what God is. You know, I think of there's this like vague spiritualism that exists in our society of like God being some kind of like force that exists out there that's, you know, really more to do with helping you feel good than than something else of like, you know, through your words or, you know, you know, like manifesting, you can, <laughs> you, you know, like access the good feels of the universe. And, and I'm being a little bit critical right now, but I, like, I think the term the term that's been used is moralistic therapeutic deism. <laughs> yes yeah exactly of this it's just like do these kind of things to help you feel good and and you know you know and god doesn't really care what your actions are like he doesn't have a law that you know calls you to to behave in a certain way that like constrains your your actions necessarily he just wants you to like feel good and and like and and, and again while people probably who subscribe to this view wouldn't necessarily describe it this way I, like, I think it is illustrative to say that is so far removed from how Jews would be thinking of the nature of God that, like, I don't even know what it means to tell that kind of person to repent without first doing the Pauline thing of explaining God is transcendent, God has this providence, he's created you in his image, he has a claim on you because you are his offspring, that he gets to tell you what's what and what you can and can't do. And so as a result, you need to repent. And like, and kind of taking that Pauline approach, I think is so much more important than relying on a like a knowledge base. If it's, there's, a, there's an equivocation in the knowledge where... People certainly have this understanding or like know the word God and have their own mental associations with it. And they know the word Jesus and have mental associations with who Jesus is. But on the whole, people's associations with God and Jesus are so incredibly wrong that I don't even think it's helpful to simply say repent and believe because what that will be cueing in the mind of the hearer is like doesn't have anything to do with what the actual Christian message is. Yeah, I, th I like that you pointed out that like the conception of Jesus is wrong. So you know, people have like a 
you know, I think even most atheists have a pretty like positive view of Jesus, right? There's kind of that famous quote. I think it, who was it who said it? Um, was it like Gandhi <laughs> um, or the Dalai or the Dalai Lama or someone like that who was like, I like Christ, but I do not like Christians. Oh yeah, yeah that that's because Gandhi. the Christians are not like their Christ, right? Okay, was it Gandhi? And and like the the thrust of his quote was like basically the the worldview underlying that was this assumption that Jesus was this hippie preacher who went around talking about love all the time and that because Christians aren't constantly saying happy things to the world around them that they therefore are not like Christ and I just want to kind of get up in Gandhi's face and show him the passage in Revelation where Jesus is stomping people until the blood flows as high as a horse's bridle (laughs) like (laughs) like you know, just like, uh, what Jesus are you talking about? The the Jesus who is the only person in the Bible who talks about hell and uses stark terminology for it, talks about it as eternal fire, talks about how we should cut off our hands so that we can enter heaven instead of be th- being thrown into hell. You know, like even Paul and the, and the prophets, they will speak of God's judgment, but they don't talk about hell. That's only Jesus and, of course, the book of Revelation that talk about that. Um to my knowledge, I can't think of any passage like in Paul where he just like talks about the fire of hell. That's Jesus. That's only Jesus who does that. Um, and so, it, you know, it's just kind of completely incorrect understanding of who Jesus is, uh, you know, and obviously Jesus did tell us to love our enemies. But uh, but there is also this side of Jesus that is, um, let's say, not not safe for. <laughs> not safe for polite discussion in 21st century America. <laughs> yes, Jesus was incredibly divisive. Like, certainly he preached about love, but it, it, and I mean, even his preaching about love, though, wasn't the sentimental kind of love that we associate in our society of like, ah, oh, love. It's just like accepting people at, on their own terms as they are acknowledging and celebrating and validating everything that they like associate about themselves it's like that's that's not at all what jesus talks about with love i think jesus would describe that as hatred (laughs) if you just if you if you validate people's sin i think jesus would describe that as hating your brother hot take and that's not to say that again that's not to say given the matthew 7 passage that we ought to nitpick everybody's faults (laughs) do not judge or you too will be judged Yes, there's definitely a balance (laughs) yeah but to, to to just allow people to run headlong into depravity to their own destruction Jesus would describe that as hatred. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a hatred of brother born out of fear. Right. Yes, and yes, yes. perfect love casts out fear, right? <laughs> but yeah, so we've sort of been riffing off of like, you know, this culture doesn't doesn't understand um really much about about uh about the Christian faith. I it's always shocking to me when I run into an unbeliever who really knows much of anything about the Christian faith. I mean, people who are relatively educated could tell you that like Christians believe, you know, uh, Jesus died for, you know, our sins and, and rose again. And if you believe in him, you will, you know, you will be saved. Like you won't go to hell. I think that's about all that most people could say about Christianity. Um, and then maybe they know the story of Noah or whatever. You know, they might know a few like famous stories that get referenced in our media and our literature a lot. Um, but they wouldn't they wouldn't have any conception of why those stories matter to Christians, why those stories are of significance in the broader scheme of things. Um And frankly, I think even a lot of people in the church don't know. So, I I mean, I've encountered that a lot. So, you know, I think there's circumstances in which a purely Petrine approach to this would would be would make sense. I mean, there's certainly like if if you're preaching in a small rural town in Texas, then you probably are going to have most people somewhat more aware 
um, of like a biblical worldview over there. Uh, I wouldn't know. I don't live in Texas, but I'm just kind of assuming that there are places in America in like the Bible Belt that are still pretty culturally Christian. However, I think a lot of people there are just culturally Christian. That's that's what I've heard, at least from from people who preach in the in the Bible Belt, that there's a lot of cultural Christianity, not a lot of like deep, heartfelt, like repentance and devotion to Jesus. And in that circumstance, you would definitely take the Petrine approach. Um, you wouldn't tell them like, hey, there's God and he made you. They'd be like, yeah, we know. <laughs> like my mama told me that when I was little. <laughs> like, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, they, they know that, but they, you know, but but they perhaps have not devoted themselves to Jesus yet. They haven't really considered the demands of the gospel. Maybe they were baptized, but they're not living it out very much. Um, and those are the people who I think the prophets in the Old Testament and Peter's approach to the Jews who had crucified Jesus is more instructive for us. Whereas here in Seattle, goodness. I, I, yeah, I, compare that. Yeah, compare that against someone. Oh, sorry, you were going to go. I was just going to say here in Seattle, I can't think of a single audience you could gather where you would <laughs> where you would you would take the Petrine approach. You would take the Pauline approach instead. Um, and, and you would you would instead you, you would tell them about who God is and you would accuse them of a need for repentance because of something they ought to know, but don't right? some, some contradiction in their own beliefs um, and their own practices that indicate that they ought to know better, but they don't know better. And they're, they're sinning against God. And because of that, God has commanded them to repent because he's commanded everyone everywhere to repent or, and judgment is coming. And that's a part of what Paul goes on to say as well, repent and judgment is coming if you do not. And I mean, that starts to sound like, you know, you're the crazy street preacher, uh, but it is what Paul did. Well, with that kind of discussion of looking at the apostolic example of what preaching the, the gospel looks like, let's uh, let's pivot here a little bit and and uh, uh, see if we can't modify the Romans road or, you know, as we've been saying, maybe repave the Romans road a little bit to turn it into the Romans Autobahn that that uh, includes more of the the elements that were central to the apostolic kerygma, the apostolic proclamation, and see if we can uh, then sort of create this pathway that uh, uh, sort of includes all of those elements uh, uh, with it. So it'll be a little bit longer. And and let's just talk about maybe some ground rules for, for how we want to do this. We want to take the same approach as the Romans Road, and that is offer kind of single verse chunks from the Book of Romans that that sort of encapsulate the ideas of what we're what we're wanting to 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 bring across. That's the first one. The each of the stops has to be a verse from the Book of Romans. And uh, number two, uh, it should explain all the basics that are of immediate importance to teach new converts and those who are prospective converts who are curious about the faith. And number three, we're going to acknowledge that just with the Rome, with the Romans Road, how it cannot be a systematic theology, we're not seeking to make a systematic theology here either. This is the the idea is a collection of verses that you can use to kind of scaffold out your proclamation of what the gospel is. And so, you know, certainly we could construct a systematic theology just from the Book of Romans, but that's not kind of what we're trying to do here. The idea is to hit the basic elements of the apostolic kerygma. For the purpose of sharing the gospel. And I think lastly, uh, because we spent so much time talking about Paul uh, preaching to the Athenians, I think we should we should add another step here, which is uh, since we can't give a comprehensive systematic theology, I think our Romans Autobahn should uh, should only focus on the like the verses specifically pertaining to like how we get saved and the result of that. 
Um, so even though we talked so much about like how to preach about Christ's transcendence and stuff like that, and how that's important to the to preaching to people who don't know God, I don't think that should be part of our Romans Autobahn. Um, I think that should be something that is like on a case by case basis, um, given one's own context. How do I preach to the people around me? And that's going to look very different depending on where you are, what topics you choose to focus on when you're talking about God and who he is. There's a lot that you could say, and I don't think there, there's a whole lot that is absolutely crucial to say. I think it's there's there's different things you would want to say, um, depending on who you're talking to. So Well, so what we should do is for listeners of the podcast, if you want to construct a, a, a parallel road, maybe we could call this the axe road or the axe uh, pathway, uh, you could you could select different verses from the book of Acts or I mean, you could you could use whatever verses you want to try to construct a, you know, maybe three, four, five step process that would bring somebody from the state of I, I don't really have strong conceptions of God to, you know, some place where this then Romans Autobahn would then be able to bridge the gap. So how do you like all of those things? Of, you can merge onto the Romans Autobahn. Yes, yes. This is the on-ramp. <laughs> so, okay, listeners of the podcast, if you want to construct the Romans Autobahn on-ramp, you can send it to the John 315 podcast at gmail.com. And uh, to tell you what, the best one that we get from our listening audience, maybe we'll mention it on a, on a future podcast. So there's a little bit of homework on this one. You, you all need to design the on-ramp, but we'll give you the Autobahn. We are doing some hardcore biblical civil engineering here. Let me tell you. <laughs> it's time for the other meat. So let's 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 get going though. Let's um so steps one through four on our Autobahn, I think those are already good from the Romans Road. I don't think we need to change them. Um with perhaps a little asterisk uh that when we talk about Romans ten nine, we need to make sure we're talking about repentance and the Lordship of Christ. Um which I think is in that verse. So I don't think we need to add a verse. Um <laughs> but I think steps one through four are good. And then for point number five, I think that one is also okay, but I, I really want to separate out verses uh, 8-1 and 5-1 into two separate points. And so what I really want to do is hit Romans 5-1 as stop number five on the Romans Autobahn, and that is, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because I think that kind of wraps up the this transition phase of, of you get the, you know, we're condemned, Christ died for us, you need to confess and believe, and the result of the confessing and believing is the justification by faith linked with having peace with God. And then from Romans 5.1 with this having peace with God, it immediately transitions from there into, well, okay, I have peace now, but like, what does that mean and what implications does that have for my my life going forward? And then this cues us up for, I think, what the rest of the Romans Autobahn is here, where we can include some other verses that talk about all of those other really important elements, which we'll get into right now. All right. So one great additional step, and some of these we've already talked about at length earlier, um, but I think indwelling of the spirit is crucial. Uh, part of our reconciliation with God is are, is the peace that comes from the Holy Spirit. So I, I think a good verse for this would be Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 
And I think one of the, you know, like we saw in the Petrine example of the proclamation of the gospel is absolutely central is Jesus's exaltation and the intercession that he provides for us. So this is the idea that Christ is, in fact, at God's right hand, and that by being at God's right hand, he is able to, you know, again, the word is intercede, but basically to petition the Father on our behalf that we, you know, and, and this gets talked about a lot in the book of Hebrews, but that, you know, our our status of being in peace with God is something that is sustained continually by Jesus in heaven because he is at God's right, he's, he's at the Father's right hand to be able to intercede for us. Uh, and so he's able to continually petition on our behalf before God, so that our state of being in peace with God is something that continues, you know, into eternity. And and so I think a, a great verse that illustrates this point is given to us in Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so this hits the idea of Christ being raised and being at God's right hand to intercede on our behalf. That's a great one, John. I think uh, we also talked about baptism earlier. And baptism, uh, this one I can kind of understand why it's not on the Romans road, because it's not a huge topic of the book of Romans. Uh, but there is this stuff at the beginning of Romans chapter 6, uh, which, which touches on it. And so I'm looking at verses 3 through 4 here. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So I think this is, uh, it doesn't necessarily directly command us to be baptized the way that Peter does in Acts 2, but it does uh, explain the significance of baptism. Um, And... uh, and especially I like this uh, This baptized into Christ means being baptized into his death. The baptism is symbolic of, you know, our, our ability to be raised from the dead and just as Christ was. Uh, and also our ability to walk in newness of life. So, so it touches on the like the present significance of baptism in the Christian life as well. So these are good verses, I think, for baptism. Uh even though we might prefer another book of the Bible if we wanted a more comprehensive treatment. But this will be good enough for our Romans Autobahn, I think. Certainly. And connected with that idea of, you know, one of the things of being buried with Christ in death and, you know, being raised from, uh, uh, you know, and being, being raised with him, kind of that's what that image of baptism is in this verse. I think we should also include uh, the verse uh, Romans 8.1, uh, because it, it really highlights this idea of being in Christ Jesus or being united with Jesus. And that is our, our Romans 8.1, which says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And kind of the idea here of, of this is all over the New Testament, this idea of being in Christ Jesus. And the idea is that we are united with Jesus. And, and we just saw in the previous verse, it's through baptism that that, uh, that uniting happens. 
but that this like being joined with Christ is that we are being formed into his body and in the context of the church that, you know, the, some of the other analogies that get used is we are, are brought into the family of God. And, you know, all of this of being uh, 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 brought together into this one whole that is being united with Christ. And, and because we are one with Christ in that we then gain all of the benefits and advantages that Christ is one, namely these, you know, being raised bodily and, and also, uh, you know, being given eternal life and the promise of the spirit and and all of these other things of the Christian life are because we are joined with Christ so that we get all of the advantages and benefits that Christ himself has won. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit now about a section of Romans that has not been part of our discussion thus far, uh, and that would be what happens after chapter 11. <laughs> There's five more chapters to the book of Romans that we haven't talked about. And for understandable reasons, uh, chapter 12 pivots into a discussion of of how we ought to live as a response to the gospel. And so uh, Paul immediately starts talking about, you know, ethics, <laughs> how Christians ought to behave. And so it's sort of like, it sort of comes after salvation, after after you first believe. Um, so, so that being said, though, there are a few things in this section that I think ought to be added to the Romans road because I think new believers ought to know them. Uh, and first would be the doctrine of sanctification. And we see this right off the bat in chapter 12, verse two, uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I love this verse so much. I love the, uh, the do not be conformed, but be transformed. I like the way the ESV renders it there. Um, that, and it also has this, has this like built-in understanding that like being transformed doesn't just like necessarily happen immediately. Right. Um, and being conformed also doesn't just happen immediately. Uh, Paul is talking about a process by which believers ought to gradually become more like Christ through the renewal of their mind and avoid the things of the world that cause us to conform to that instead. Um, so I really like this verse as, as like an explanation of how we, slowly but surely come to know Christ better and uh, and be more holy and be more sanctified by walking with Christ. And, and I also love that the second half of the verse even gives us some concrete examples of what that transformation looks like, that, you know, through this discerning, uh, that we learn what the will of God is, that we learn what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. So that you know, there's this idea that as a new convert, you might not necessarily know what, like, what is God's will. You might not know what is good. You might not know what's acceptable or what is perfect. But that this process of sanctification, this transformation of your mind, which, again, is mediated by the Spirit, which we have now in the Romans Autobahn, that, like, that transformation that happens will show you what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect, so that you can, in fact, do what is pleasing to God. Absolutely. And uh, there's another great uh, verse in this Romans 12 chapter. It's a really fantastic chapter um, that I think needs to be part of our Romans road. And that is uh, participation in the church. Uh, this is not a negotiable part of Christianity. <laughs> um, perhaps we could do another episode where we talk about that, because I think this is a huge issue in the church today. Uh, our view of the church is far too low. Uh and I'll leave my comment at this, but I think the year 2020 has demonstrated just how low we view the church. Um, 
Like, so <laughs> I'll leave the comment there. Let's just say there are many pastors in prison in China right now because they refused to stop gathering, even though the government told them to stop. Um, and we they they are putting us to shame in their devotion to Christ and their belief in the in the importance of gathering to worship him. And so I think uh, I think it's apropos to put a point here that like just being a Christian and bap being baptized and you do, you don't get to just go go it alone <laughs> after that. Um, the the church is Christ's body. Uh, Christ is the head of the church, and all all Christians are commanded to participate in the life of their local uh, gathering. Um, and so, there's one verse in in Romans 12 which doesn't directly talk about the church, but I think is is exactly along this topic. It's 12:10, and it says, "Love one another with brotherly affection." Um, I just love that that verse. It's so so succinct and and true, and um, I, I love that it talks about you know the brotherly affection. So it so it hits at the brotherhood of believers uh, that that exists in the church. So it's not just love one another in a general sense, kind of like you were mentioning earlier, John, that the the love of of the Bible is not a sentimentality. Um, it's talking about true affection and brotherhood. Um, dying for one another, you know, giving giving everything up um, for one another. And you find that in the church. Uh, and we are called first and foremost to love the other brothers and sisters in our churches. Uh, that's what Paul says. Uh, Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the household of believers. Uh, and so that is our first priority. Uh, and I love this verse because it says it so succinctly. Uh, we must participate in the church. That is not a negotiable aspect of the Christian faith at all. That is something every new believer should should hear, should embrace. Uh, there is no, there is no, uh, there is no full body if it's just a disembodied Christ without his body. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. That's like a it's a very freakish understanding of of the people of God to just have a disembodied Christ uh, floating around without a body. <laughs> Certainly, and then I think the the final stop on our Romans autobahn here is something that we can uh, see that will will point us to the future that you know we we have this you know this idea of of being joined with Christ and you know here's all the things of like sanctification and participation in Christ's body and like and here's all of the like wonderful benefits that you're going to receive but i think there might be a lingering question that is well just because i have accepted this thing now what what does that mean about the future of my life? You know, is there is there any sense in which I'm going to continue on this road or or like, you know, can I fall off of this this pathway of following Jesus of, you know, like what what does it what, what does it look like in the end? You know, it, it's great that I have this thing now, but what what does the future hold for us? And and for this, I think the uh, the doctrine of perseverance that those who have been joined with Christ will in fact persevere in that faith to the end and you know inherit that eternal life. And I think the verse that best illustrates this is in the end of Romans eight that we get to the end of this like this section of God talking or of Paul talking about all the things that God has done for us, and then we get this final piece here of Paul saying. In, in Romans 8, starting in verse 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.
Well, that's a fantastic way to end it out, I think. Um, you know, the Autobahn never ends. It goes on forever. <laughs> nothing's going to nothing's going to derail your car from that from that road. <laughs> Certainly. There may be there may be traffic there may be traffic in the future of of times that you go quickly and go slowly, but to to be joined with Christ is to stay on the path. And perseverance isn't usually something that is presented to new converts. I think that's something that later people start to wonder about and feel insecure about. Um, but I don't know. You have the chance to talk about Romans 8, 38 and 39. Why would you just let it slip? You know, it's like literally the two best <laughs> verses. Like, has, has any human written anything better than Romans 8? I, I know it was also authored by the Holy Spirit, but like... <laughs> <laughs> like seriously, why why wouldn't you find a way to shoehorn these verses into the Romans Autobahn? <laughs> yeah, totally. And and I mean, and I think and I think this is like this is the big punchline of of the the gospel message is that uh, like of course there are things that are require a response and that it it like there are these wonderful benefits that were given. But I feel like kind of at the core of this entire gospel message is uh, like central to it is God's faithfulness to us. Is at the core is that God has done this thing and He will be faithful to us into eternity as well. That there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. And so I think kind of ending and wrapping things up with that is is the perfect conclusion that it all rests on God's eternal faithfulness to his people. Amen to that. Well, I think it might be time for some milk after all that hardcore autobahning. But first, let's recap. Let's, let's go through our whole Romans road here from uh, the original Romans road steps to um, our extended Romans off-roading. <laughs> All right, so in step number one of the Romans Road, we learn that everybody sins. It's a big bummer. Uh, in step two, uh, we have that because we sin, we deserve death. In step number three, we finally get to the good news, and that is that Christ died for our sins. And step four, by believing in this Christ who died for our sins, we can be saved. And in step number five, we learn that by being justified in this way, we are brought into this new state of having peace with God. Rather than being condemned, we have peace. And number six, part of this peace with God involves the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, um, who comes to uh, convict true believers of sin and guide us toward holiness. And step number seven, that there is a thing that you do in response to this this work that God has done in your life. We get this, that and that, that thing that you do is baptism in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, that you are commanded to be baptized, and that that is, uh, is this sign of you being unified with Christ, both in his death and then also in his resurrection. And in step eight, uh, we are unified with Christ Jesus as symbol symbolized by our baptism. And in step number nine, that that being unified with Christ is this wonderful thing because Christ has been exalted, that he is has been uh, uh, that he is ascended into heaven, that he seat, that he sits at God's right hand, and that because he is at God's right hand, he is constantly interceding for us, that he is petitioning God on our behalf for this continued state of having peace with God. And step 10, uh, sanctification, a related topic to the indwelling of the Spirit. We gradually uh, become more like Christ as he intercedes for us and covers our faults. We actually do become more holy and become more like him. 
And step number 11, that this entire Christian life that we live has to be in the context of a local church body. In Romans 12.10, we are commanded to love one another, that is, the, the fellowship of believers, with brotherly affection. And lastly, uh, step 12, of course, is perseverance. All of the aforementioned 11 steps um, are blessings that continue to be poured out on Christians and obligations that Christians continue to have as the Holy Spirit works with us to keep our faith secure um, and to keep us unified with Christ and so that we will never be separated from the love of God that is found in him. It's time for milk, not solid food. So for the milk today, we are going to jump over to the uh, the other really great theologically dense book of the New Testament, and that is the book of Hebrews. We have here in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Consequently, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Well, in the words of the immortal philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you've liked what you heard, have verses you want us to break down, questions you think we can answer, or a Romans Autobahn on-ramp to share, you can send them to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That's thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.